welcome to another episode of Don't Give Up Skeleton. I'm your host, Jeremy Greer. We're back with another Don't Give Up Skeleton remastered episode. Uh, This is a conversation with our friend Loki, who is a translation specialist, maybe? I don't really know what you would call them. Uh, But uh, way back in the day, um, they came on the podcast to talk about um, Dark Souls 1 and the, the way to uncover different aspects of the lore while studying the translation and some of the original scripts uh, that, that are available for the games. Uh, since then, uh, tons of stuff has happened, but most notably, uh, they've linked up with Tune and Fairweather to produce the Abyssal Archive, which is a two-volume set of uh, definitive Dark Souls lore. That's right. This is the only way that you can interpret the game. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Loki would not like me saying that. Uh but it's two huge books. Um, it's a cool map. But there's a bunch of really cool physical editions of this thing that are just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Tune and Fairweather did um, the You Died book, and they've done some other Souls books in between. Definitely worth taking a look at. Check the, uh, the link at abyssalarchive.com. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode with Loki. Loki, welcome back to Don't Give Up Skeleton. Uh, I'm happy to have you back. How have you been in the last four years? Well, I'm happy to be back, but, well, a lot's happened since. I, I launched a website. I've been on many other podcasts over the years. Lately, I've been able to get a book coming out, like crying to crazy. In fact, it's two books of Awakening. <laughs> it's funny how that... <laughs> It is funny how that works out. Um, and yeah, like you reached out to me um, and said that you have your new book coming out, uh, being published on TuneIn Fairweather, who is uh, uh, friends of the show. My boy Jason Killingsworth over there doing, putting in the work, um, doing some beautiful, beautiful hardback books as he is known to do. So uh, kind of tell us in general the, the idea of the book. And then uh, we'll get, as we go along, we'll kind of get into some details about it. And also just kind of want to hear some of your soul's opinions if they've changed over the last four years. But let, let's start with the book and kind of tell me, what is it? What, what, what are people buying? So this, well, the idea with these two volumes is that we are trying to create a comprehensive, consistent lore book, essentially, for, for lack of a better word. It, it's somewhat like a research book, but it's a little bit too casual for that, for an academic, like an academic paper thesis for that type of deal. So we're trying to make something that's very accessible, but it's very detailed and comprehensive on the entirety of the original Dark Souls. So the first Dark Souls, Dark Souls 1. Okay. So this doesn't uh, like expand to Dark Souls 2 or Dark Souls 3. It's firmly focused yeah. on Dark Souls 1. They are, they are referenced sometimes. What we decided was there's a huge, obviously, conversation to be had in the community about how you should analyze each game right because like maybe you want to take the position of okay each game needs to be looked at on their own you shouldn't factor in dark souls 2 and 3 at all when talking about dark souls 1 because maybe the later games change the lore or retcon something right so that way that could completely mess up with your interpretation other people will say well shouldn't we take each of these games as a whole and be able to look at so maybe we should factor these in so i look i'm sympathetic to both arguments but generally i said okay we should look at how was Dark Soul, what was the story? What were they going for with Dark Souls by itself at the time it was coming out, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, we sort of take in, okay, what is it that later games have? Now, I've done extensive analysis in the four years since we last talked on all the games. So I can confidently say there isn't really too much that these games are sort of retconning from each other. So they're they're very much a sort of building building block, sort of like stack one on top of the other, try to expand and uh, uh, broaden sort of the con- content with, with new details and things like that. But they aren't re- really the type of thing where you have to worry about like too many on the, oh, okay, well, this is going to be messed up because now we get revealed like in Dark Souls 3, something completely different. Like we don't really see a lot of that happening. So generally speaking we decide okay we're gonna do the analysis in dark souls one but then if there's something where it's like okay this was kind of vague in dark souls one but say a later game makes it explicit like they'll have a line or an item description or a dialogue point that just says it outright okay we'll include in parentheses pointing out okay this is made explicit later on or this detail sort of supports what this was brought up in a in say a later game it doesn't happen too often we do the same thing with demon souls too because obviously demon souls was a huge influence on dark souls it's in the name so what happens (laughs) is we 
Uh, we just use these parentheses to give you guys kind of like a tease or a hint at what things happen. Because if there's ever that lingering question in your mind, you're like, oh, I remember kind of something maybe like for that game or, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, the, the evidence. I really like the argument, but it is a bit circumstantial. It's like, OK, well, here's a later game that sort of just here says it out. Right. Gives the goose away. Yeah. So it, it just confirms that the ideas that were presented in, in the first game. Yeah, was, yeah. Um, we don't want to use it too extensively, though, because, again, it's a Dark Souls 1 book. It focuses on Dark Souls 1, and there's a lot of Dark Souls 1 content to cover. Yeah, so the, and I'm curious as to just, like, why you chose to specifically focus on the first game. Like, for me personally, the especially now that we, we're, you know, however many years later after Demon Souls, uh, Dark Souls 1 is, was my entrance to the Souls series, my entrance to From Software, really, and it's always has that special place in my heart as being, like, the first game, um, and it's the one that I've played the most even now, after hundreds of hours into Elden Ring and Bloodborne and all that stuff. Dark Souls 1 will always be that first game for me, but and I, when you're approaching this from a a lore standpoint and you're 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 writing not one but two volumes of information about the game uh what what was behind the decision just to focus on one and not to expand it to kind of include the second and the third one as well so well like i said there is that element of they build upon each other so if you don't understand what's going on in dark souls one it's going to negatively affect your understanding of two and three as you're trying to especially when you're getting to like the finer details like behind the plot undergirding like how did we get here type of stuff Mm -hmm. um so that's definitely a factor. But the main thing is that the localization qualities themselves. One of the unique angles of this book is that this focuses very heavily on talking about the um, the Japanese script versus the English script. There's a huge disconnect when you're, say, someone, say, in the Japanese community playing the game, and then when you're someone in the English community playing the game, especially in the original Dark Souls. I've always liked to say that Dark Souls 1 and Demon Souls have some of the worst localizations in From Software's lineup, and they've gotten progressively better over the years. So, like, it's sort of like you go to Dark Souls 1, you're like, eh. You get to Dark Souls 3, it's like, meh. So... So this is that's it, it's it's approaching it from an angle of you know this is the game that I could probably um, get the most information out of it's just in terms of translation and story and that's why you wanted to focus on y- this yeah if, if I started say in Dark Souls three like say you can go to my website right now and you can read plenty of analysis to Dark Souls three but you're gonna see me a lot of times making vague callbacks or making sort of like a very brief overview of stuff that's in Dark Souls one and I'm obviously not gonna get into all the the gory details when I'm say talking about a completely different game in Dark Souls three too I'm like Okay, you know, that's something separate. This book goes all in on Dark Souls 1. It goes all in on a lot of translation problems and inconsistencies throughout them. For example, a favorite one I like to bring up is there's this there's this statement in Dark Souls 1 where it says, Ornstein cut a boulder in half. And you're like, okay, sounds kind of generic, but okay, whatever. Like, it, it's fine. Like a harmless line, right? Well, what does it say in the Japanese script? Oh, it tells you he pierced stone scales, which is a bit more lore relevant and very different again when you compare the two scripts. So, like, stuff like this, and you're like, well, maybe, you know, that's kind of inconsequential. Well, it starts stacking up when you start seeing all the examples and how much it goes. So, so you have big translation issues, small translation issues, and they just sort of all mix together to create a whole mess. Sure, yeah. So it all just kind of, and then I guess documenting that process is probably what gave you the idea to actually combine this as a book. Was that what? Yeah. The so originally was? it was going to be something where I was just okay. I'm going to write like a but I'm going to document all these things and I'm going to talk about it. One problem that happened was like say back in my early Reddit days, around the time that that we were doing our first podcast. I was um, writing all these basically focuses on the translation stuff, which is fine when like there's a lot of huge translation things like in say Isolith or Havel or some of the dragons, the opening cinematic, like things like this. There's a lot of content to go through and sort of specifically point out. But when there's some things in the game that you can't just say, okay, here's the translation thing. You kind of have to explain in context why it matters, right? It's not something that's sort of like it, it's it's you know it sort of stands on its own per se when you just look at it. So what I had to do was thinking, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Okay, well, I guess I'll go into some analyses and things. So I'll give like a bigger breakdown. I'll, I'll factor in all these other things. I'll factor in you know the psychology of the characters, the environment we have. You know, do a little souls archaeology. Um, and take all that and put it together with the translation stuff so I can kind of show you how that affects things. And eventually that just kind of snowballed into just becoming, let's do a book. Let's do a there's book. there's just so much here <laughs> and there's so much to dig into. And when it all comes together, you can really get a sense of how um, complete um, Dark Souls 1 is. So how did you uh, first get in touch with uh, Tune and Fairweather and Jason's group? <laughs> um 
this is actually thanks to my uh, collaboration with Vati over the over the years. We okay. we sort of Vati's actually the one who who first like vocalized the idea of the book. I had it in my head, but it was like it's one of those things where you're like, hey, you pin that. It's like you know, you know, you never never lift a gift horse in the mouth. But then when Vati sort of comes forward and says, hey, do you know you you want to do a book? And I'm like, okay, sure. That's why I decided we're gonna we're gonna do this thing then. Um, and then he, oh, then he got me in touch with Jason, and things just sort of blossomed from there. Good deal. Excellent. Um, I've I've watched the Vati stuff over the years since you and I have recorded, um, and always made note of when because like it was like with that you know the Leonardo DiCaprio meme of like oh, oh pointing at the screen I know that person <laughs> I've talked to them. <laughs> how sometimes um, I get the credit. <laughs> <laughs> how is that? Because uh, you know I think even from the very beginning the souls games have had this huge spirit of collaboration and i think that was well intentioned from uh from software we've seen interviews with Miyazaki about you know pushing cars through the snow or whatever but um the lore community specifically seems like it's always built on top of each other in a in a really synchronized way um it, not synchronized that's not the word i'm looking for but in a well-spirited like community level right like everyone kind of pulling and reading and taking stuff um and 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 putting their own spin on it and coming up with their own ideas when you're approaching something like this with a book with where you're saying this is the story of dark souls one um how hard is it to separate like your personal feelings from the community lore feelings from the actual text and all of that stuff like how how do you kind of juggle those things in your mind like do you have to really sit down with a piece of paper and think okay these are the ideas that i want to present and make sure that i'm presenting them correctly or is it just like these are what i really really feel Oh no! So, well, I've definitely over the course of writing it, some of my own opinions as someone who, who with well, going through, like, say, the Japanese script, playing it, you know, in the Japanese side. Like, when you're a casual fan, you're going to not necessarily critically examine some of your own thoughts or first impressions, right? Like, sometimes you're just wrong, right? Like, you have an idea, you're kind of, oh my god, it works to do so, but then when you actually think it over, you're like, eh, you know, there's a lot more problems than this one than when it like first clicked in my brain, right? So. Um, some, sometimes you just have a bad idea and it's something that you have to confront when you're doing a hardcore analysis and just thinking, okay, this just doesn't work. I, I, I can't like justify this. Right. And that, and that can hurt, like, especially if you're like emotionally attached to like certain idea ideas. But, um, I think it's something that for the betterment of just like trying to understand the games as a whole, I think it's just something that y you get over. Um, in terms of like generally how I approach it and making the analysis, I just try to do a simple fact-based analysis well i i like to say that i have three pil pillars and they basically boil down to me talking about the text the environment and the character so what these three pillars you sort of juggle between where it's like okay well this is what the text says this is what the environment shows me and this is what we get from the care what we're told or given or sort of can fill in about the characters who they are and once you sort of like develop that stuff you kind of have to then sort of like put on like the writer's brain and think of okay what is it that uh, Miyazaki is trying to t tell us and there's a lot of obviously more complicated factors than that for example with a text like obviously there's limited assets in a video game right so like um everything for example is put in a, in a chest in in Dark Souls and you're like okay well it, re really even a flame it's like okay obviously the idea of chest is being used to um for the sake of storing it's not something where you're going to have to want to like overanalyze the fact that they they put it in a chest itself it's sort of the general idea of okay someone wanted to put this in an official placement versus saying when you find it on a corpse it's like okay this is on the body but you know they sort of died with it and there could be various circumstances maybe it's something they ate maybe it's something they stole from someone maybe it's just something they own regularly maybe it's something they picked up in the area like there the, you can kind of see how there's you have to sort of organize and sort of detail these things and sort of draw the line on when is this something where we seriously consider this in the world of Dark Souls, when do we consider this just a game? You combine that with stuff like the text, for example. Um, there's some people who will go with the idea of, oh, you know, we just got to read the text literally. Okay, what do you mean by literally? Because there's different ways. Do you, does that mean you read the idioms now literally? Does that mean that some of the metaphorical or, say, exa obviously exaggerated language now has to be read literally? Like, there's obviously, whenever you're doing any sort of text-critical analysis, you have to consider a variety of factors to try to understand what is it that the writer is trying to get across. Sometimes, a lot of times, especially... In, in regular conversation, you just say something with absolute language, like, oh, everyone's gone, and then you'll find the one person who's not, and you're like, well, that's sort of an exception, but it's not necessarily means the whole rule is wrong, and that's sort of what I try to generally get as when you're looking through 
um, the the games as a whole, you need to sort of take all of these factors and sort of condense them into something where, okay, here is what is the most here's what is the most likely to be the truth. Now, I can't give you the definitive edition of the lore. No one can. Miyazaki himself has admitted he's not interested in sharing it all, though he likes to talk about it in interviews and stuff and pieces. He's not going to give you the full uh, breakdown like I'm doing here. But what I can do is is promise you that you're going to have probably the best, biggest, strongest foundation for helping make your own theories, have your own discussions, just sort of enjoy the Dark Souls narrative. So, out of all of that, like, I, I think the question has to be asked, uh, because <laughs> taking such a deep and detailed view of one video game that came out 11 years ago, what is the factor that uh, is pulling you through that's been like keeping you at Dark Souls 1 for so long? Like, what do you think it is specifically about these games that make you so fascinated that you just want to pull them apart? Like, is this something that you approach other video games with as well, or is it kind of limited to Oh, certainly games? not. I never did anything like this before. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't I don't usually write nonfiction, so it's like, this is this is all new for me. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't expect when I first walked in, English, I thought it was going to be, okay, well, I'm going to just sort of explain these things to the highlight to the community in some of these Japanese things, and then fans can do with it what they will, right? Like, I don't care in the end if you believe my theory or whatever my conclusions on on things ultimately i just want to make sure that the community is aware okay there's a lot of pro there's a lot of problems with the official release of the on the english side and obviously many of the other language side because it goes from japanese to english and then it gets handed off to at least in the in the west a bunch of the other western nations to get localized into them so there's a bunch of filters going through depending on on which part of america or europe you're in right sure so Mm -hmm. You're taking all you're taking all of that, and it's like there, there there's just so much that could go wrong, right? But then it's like, okay, well, why is it important with Dark Souls? You say for me, Dark Souls and from software titles in general, I think even if like I were to say, oh, they're not necessarily my my favorite games of all time or whatever, just like on a personal emotional level, they're so important. I think in terms of video games as art, there is there is something in the Dark Souls narrative that you can't do in other mediums. You have to have that ability to just be in that world and explore it at your own leisure. The ability to just find the different items, listen to the different characters in the dialogue, just sort of exist in this world and sort of pick up through context and clues, understanding how it it all works. I think that's something that's very special and very, I wouldn't say 100% unique, but largely unique because of how much Dark Souls relies on the show-don't-tell aspect. Or in their case, like maybe... uh, (laughs) Uh, t- uh, tell, uh, tell, don't tell with the item description and things like that. But sort of giving you a <laughs> yeah. bigger sense of the 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 world and the history and the characters to this place without necessarily just sort of feeding you in a codex entry. Sure. Yeah, I, I could definitely get that. It's um, it's interesting that you brought that up. That it's uh, you know, there's a certain way that video games can tell a story that's completely impossible to do in other mediums. Um, just like comic books have a way that they can tell a story or, you know, an actual book has, has a way they can tell a story. Video games are completely different and not all video games take advantage of that. And not all video exactly, games. Exactly. Like do, we, do we all way. know the big, we all know the big hullabaloo about say cinematic games and everything has to have the super cinematic quality. The graphics have to be super cinematic. The cutscenes have to be do. So we have to get all these A-list actors and things like a lot of times you feel like video games are just trying to be Hollywood. They're just trying to be these big blockbuster movies. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, like there's, there's a lot of value in great into that but that doesn't lean into what makes video games unique it's the interactivity it's the ability to make choices that can go down different paths it's really you decide you control the camera you decide what you're looking at for the most part and that's something that dark souls leans into very heavily compared to say a lot of other games where you're like okay i gotta go down this hallway and then i watch this cutscene, and then i'm going to be in this little set piece where i have to basically look in this direction we're just supposed to all go right so there's a lot more um there's a lot more freedom um to indulge the narrative or not to to go this way or go that and it's just something that um it makes dark souls special and i feel like the localization issues definitely hinder it in a way that wasn't necessary at release and certainly isn't necessary now so with that in mind i'm curious how you envision people um kind of in experiencing the the book that you're writing is this uh are you thinking that you know this is for players who are have you know they've played Dark Souls one, maybe they played the other games, and they are just so curious about the world that they they want to go and seek more information, or is this like a little bit more of a of a companion to maybe read along with the, while you're playing the game? Like how how is the ideal experience for you as you because I'm sure you've read this thing a thousand times as you've been editing it, <laughs> so you probably have it if not memorized, you can definitely think of whole pieces. But how? 
do you want people to experience this? Like what, what do you want this open in their lap with a video game controller in their hand or how do you, how are you envisioning it in your head? I think it's definitely something to be read afterwards because, like I said, especially with Dark Souls 1, there's a lot of freedom in, in where you can go. Like, if you want to, you can brute force into the catacombs and stuff. And um, I'm not not going to have a little thing that tells you, oh, if you went this way into the game, please go to Chapter 4 or something like that, right? So um, there's this there's this idea that if you, you've played the game, you've probably got, like, a broad familiarity with at least, if not the entire game, then at least a lot of things in it. And obviously, if you're a longtime fan, you've probably, and you're, you've been really into the lore and the story and the characters and stuff, you're someone who's probably consumed every bit, every, you've watched every lore video, you've watched, um, you've looked through every fo- online forum, you've just done everything you can to gather every little piece of information you can about the game that could possibly inform your worldview on it. It's like, okay, so... We want you, who, who who's played the game, who's read through all these things, be able to go through and say, okay, dump everything you thought you know, and let's just start from the beginning all the way to the end. And the chapters generally follow a logical through line, like in, in terms of like a history, like, okay, we're going to start from the very beginning with the cosmology, sort of explain all the rules to the universe and things like that. Then we're going to go into the early history with like the dragons and things like that. Then we're obviously going to get into the gods. And then we're going to talk about a lot of the major players among the gods. You got Isleth, you got Nido, you got Gwen, you got Seath, you got all these different characters. We're going to obviously talk about place in the DLC and stuff. So we're going to talk about um, painting world in the secret area. We're going to talk about um, Manus and Ulysseal, and then as the book peters off at the end, we're going to talk about, you know, some of the more ancillary stuff, you know, the Lautrex, the Solaires, you know, these minor characters, Vinheim, Great Swamp, these minor places. They're not necessarily, you know, critical to following the narrative or anything else, but they sort of build on the world and they feed into each other, and there's a lot of historical overlap and stuff to consider. And sort of, these things sort of we put more towards into the second volume, for example. So, kind of, yes, okay, first volume, I get all the main, I get pretty much almost all the main plot stuff. Second volume, you know, I get a lot more of the ancillary stuff that sort of helped build up and flesh it out fully. And then by the end, you're 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 going to be a, a new lore a new lore scholar. So <laughs> you'll be able to argue with the best of them. Um, that's another thing I wanted to bring up because that's one of the most fascinating things to me about the the lore community for Dark Souls is that there's so many different opinions and there's so many people that like to uh, approach it from different angles or approach it from different perspectives. Uh, it's it's impossible to account for everyone's taste, and I'm sure that you did your best to to, to come up with what you feel is you know the the best way that you can describe the story of this video game. Yeah, I'm um, sure there's gonna I'm sure there's gonna be people with pushback, whether for personal or maybe they just don't agree with my arguments or maybe they think that evidence isn't read the right way. There's always like there's there's so many people, there's so many eyes. There's inevitably going to be uh, there's going to be alternate thoughts, and I'm okay with that. I don't mind. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think that the, there's enough in here that you're going to find something you didn't know, and you're going to be glad that you bought the book for it. I was, I was curious if you of, of how much time you spend, because um, you're obviously, you know, doing a lot of all, almost all of this work yourself, right? Like you're, you're going through doing all of the translating, coming up with these ideas. Yeah, the tech. Yeah, so all of like that stuff. All, all yeah. the pretty much like I would have to say like 90, 95% of the text is all me. Yes. W- how often do you say uh, visit Vadi's channels or visit any other lore community uh, um, writers out there to to kind of get those alternate perspectives, um, or or even just to see like, hey, do these people agree with me, um, or are you more focused on like I want to be able to present this in kind of a an isolated way for now? Early on, like around the time we were doing our first podcast, I probably looked a lot more at uh, other people's and fo- work looking at it. But one of the issues that I had was that. It was just a lot. Of, like I said, the localization is such a huge factor. So you're seeing a lot of theories which are just bogus or they're asking questions that don't need to be asked because, again, the Japanese script already tells you the answer. Or they have a thing where they have this entire theory based on, say, a line, but that's not actually the line that's actually there in the original script. So, like, there's just so much stuff that creates misinformation and things like a good example of this is sort of Isolith. Um, one of the reasons that I one of the, the catalysts to getting into this was um going through different videos and trying to understand, okay, well, where, where's the issue? Like, why is it that I'm having a disconnect with the English community on this? Like, where, like, what's the problem? Right. And then like, as I was watching different lore videos, I got the sense, okay, so it looks like these are all the localization problems because that's not what it actually says and yada, yada. Right. Um, One of the lore channels early on that I I collaborate with was Hawkshaw and what what they did was that they had this huge breakdown on Isleth and demons. And they said something which, at least at the time, I don't know how much things have changed. The consensus was pretty much, you know, um, 
uh, Isleth tries creating First Flame, like, around the time the First Flame fades, because, you know, she's just, they're just really trying to save it or whatever, so, oh, she'll make a replacement, she, she screws up, she, um, everyone turns into demonic, like, all these demon monsters are born, they start raging across, and then Gwyn has to come in and sort of, you know, call the herd in order to protect grander civilization or what have you, right? And then, um, then he has to go link the fire and stuff. So that's sort of, like, the, the basic idea, you know, like, they're, they're just all these monsters and things, and Hawkshaw was like, no, 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 wait a second, if you look at all this environment stuff or what have you, um, that doesn't really make sense. And it's like, okay, I was like, I was actually really, because, like, Hawkshaw has a very similar methodology to me, where it's like, okay, let's just look at all, take all the facts, look at do so, and try to draw our conclusions from there. Well, one of the one of the problems that Hawkshaw has in, in that theory for as, as good as like Hawkshaw identifies the problem, he has to come to the conclusion, oh, okay, well, clearly Quailana has to be this manipulative character because she's lying to us because the stuff she tells us about how um, her her children, uh, her mother and sisters turn into these deformed creatures um, were uh, was not true. Like, it, it, it's very obvious that they, they weren't involved in this. This is part of this bigger demon society that existed, and there's this whole civilization here, so it, clearly that she has to just be lying. It's like, well, no, she's not actually lying. See, it doesn't say that my... Uh, it isn't quite Lana saying my mother and uh, sisters turned into deformed creatures, which many connect to, obviously, Quailag and the Fairy Lady becoming spider demons and sort of, like, all that. It's actually saying it becomes a... Uh, a seabed of grotesque life. In other words, the uh, the bed of chaos. The seabed of chaos is the the Japanese is trying to get at. So the the reference is supposed to be okay. My mother and a vague number of sisters became the the bed of chaos, and this is true. We see the obviously the mother and her throne, and then on the side we see the two sisters who are manifested as like these staves, just like as they are in the cinematic when they're next to their mother in the opening. So again, same idea. It's like okay, so Quailan is telling the truth here. She's not lying or anything and there's there's a lot more i can talk about on that but to, just to keep it brief the point is something like that a huge a huge assumption on the history about isleth and the culture stuff so much environment stuff gets blocked out and ignored because there's this text you connect to this oh, okay you know they just all became monsters and demons and things it's like no 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 there's so much to this and the one person who gets it has to sort of conclude that the character is lying to you because the localization is effectively lying to you not the actual character okay that makes sense. Yeah, I, I see where I see that perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm. Um, how much of? And I know I don't want to talk like specifically about the content of the book because we want people to buy the book and to read the book. But like, is is that an example of something that you're the way that you're telling the story from and from within the book? Like, are you are you kind of laying out these options and kind of like here is the story as presented in the game via this translation? But if you actually dig back deeper, this is what we'd know because of it. Like, are you presenting both of those things in the text? It would be a lot easier for me, and the book would be a lot... It probably wouldn't be two volumes if I could just say, you know, here are the conclusions, here, here you go, I'll, I'll just add some, like, Japanese text here on the side so I can do so and, you know, be on your way. No, mm -hmm. I, I go through the analysis for each and every everything as we talk about it. So if, there, if we're going to be talking about, say... To use an uh, example we talked about on our first podcast, Havel, I'm going to go through, okay, here's all the text, here's all the context of where we find these items with the text, here's any dialogue that's involved in here, um, here's how it's presented to you in-game when you're going through, like, what's sort of, like, the way that the developers are trying to give you, like, a, a, a like trying to direct the camera, so to speak, in a subtle way, mm -hmm. so... Take all that, and I, then I give you the conclusions, um, and then I build on those conclusions... And then sort of in order to create these large, in order to understand sort of the, the larger history of things. Because obviously when you have all these different theories and inferences, sometimes there's overlap in things. And they can tell you about stuff that's go going on that's that, that um, by themselves they they wouldn't. So it's sort of like a, um, it's sort of like one of these things where you like, you build the, each of the pieces and you're slowly building this giant wall. So okay. Gotcha. So let, I want to jump in to talk about the book a little bit because obviously you've done quite a bit of work on the writing. Um, I know from... Uh, just talking with Jason several times um, and just the, the passion that that dude brings to producing a, a beautiful physical object. How closely did you work with Tune and Fairweather on like the production process on like the, here's how we're going to lay it out and physically produce it. This is the quality of material. Did you, did you get, cause I'm sure like as a, anybody who's ever written anything aspires to have a published book and have like a physical like representation of their writing and to have something like that's going to be this super nice quality. It has to be extremely exciting. So I'm sure you wanted to jump in and get into some of those details, right? 
Oh, certainly. Um, well, I wasn't going to... I, when I was setting out, I was like, I wasn't going to just pick... Like, I could just find some random run-of-the-mill publisher. They'll just, like, you know, put in a simple paperback, um, like, all my text, like, and then we would have just run it through, and, like, I could have just advertised that. Like, it, that, that could have been easier. But I wanted... I wanted someone who was going, I had a very specific idea on what I wanted for the book. I had a very specific idea of what the quality should be for the book. And I was looking for a publisher who could meet that criteria. And like I said, Vati helped introduce me to Jason. I was looking at through, because um, obviously Vati's had books done through um, the, that, that same publisher as well. So mm -hmm. what happened was, um, I, I he tells me sort of about what they're doing. I look at some of those projects and things. I've looked at past projects that they've done. I'm like, and what they're trying to do now with this new publishing company. I'm just like, you know what? I think this this could really work. And then so I start talking to them. It's sort of like I said, blossom from there. Um, Jason's uh, Jason and and pretty much everyone that I, I've worked with over at uh, Tune and Fairweather, they've done so much, uh, so much for me. They've listened to so many of my demands. They've been so receptive to feedback. Um, they've done they've done their absolute best to put all their passion into this project, make something spe special of it. Um, I I'm so impressed and so happy that um, we were able to have such a a wonderful, well-realized project like this. Um, like I said, it, it took it took it took some years, but I think the final product you can see speaks for itself. It's just amazing. Yeah. So it, uh, I did a brief look uh, the other day when he sent me the link. Um, you've got several different editions of the book coming out, uh, which is kind of keeping in, in in line with what I have seen um, Jason do over the years. There's see Tuna Fairweather do over the years. Um, uh, it. It's it's I mean it's just the quality of these things just look amazing just like the amount of detail and work and design that goes into them. Um, I was following along with uh, TEDx. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but TEDx uh, Twitter thread the other day where he talked about designing the poster uh, that comes with the book. All of that stuff seems to be like just super amazing and super exciting. Like you have to be kind of overjoyed that it's working out like this, right? Like it has to be just super super exciting. Like I I I wanted to have some sort of map when the game went in. I didn't expect they would go above and beyond and give you this full map with all these different lay layers, which we can then split up and give you individual pieces during the relevant chapters. Like, again, when, when, when I when I asked something, I was like, you know, I'm expecting, like, I'll get, like, 80%. And sometimes that happens, right? Like, it's like, oh, you know, we can't do this. You know, this, this is unreasonable. We got to keep costs down, et cetera. Like, there's always going to be that type of stuff. But when they listen to my, to my and I'm a very demanding person, when I, <laughs> when they listen to my, my, my request, they really listen. They go, above and beyond it's just it's amazing with the map with the colored illustrations you can find about 17 i believe colored illustrations in total all of these depicting scenes that aren't normally shown in in the lore things that necessarily never have been depicted before necessarily in the in dark souls up until this point and you're actually being able to see those scenes get brought to life by an art artist it's just absolutely amazing with all these little details that you can enjoy that sort of help keep it all together in this this greater whole that is dark souls it's just it's absolutely amazing to see and then you add all the other things you get like sort of this quote-unquote hellkite drake leather uh uh books binding to the spine you have this um this like gu these gilded pages on on the top you get again like i said the color illustrations you have this illuminated manuscript type style with the lettering and the different little illustration like little fonts that you get to see um, throughout it like you have the custom typeface like there's just so much that goes into this book and like the publisher d deserves huge credit i did the text they did the art so like <laughs> they did it they did all of that stuff but you obviously had a you know you you wanted a certain amount of quality and i think that when uh when somebody brings that kind of requirement to someone and you can collaborate and work together on making something really wonderful like that's that's the good shit right like that's the good stuff that's that's where yeah. we're all having fun with so um yeah, ex exactly like there there's so i think I think there's it's very rare that I think you can you can find someone that just clicks with you very well. And I think I, I really clicked with this publisher. This was the this was like the perfect fit. Um, and I'm very happy with how things have worked out. So uh, real quick, and then I want to I want to kind of talk about just video games in general with you a little bit. But uh, mm -hmm. since we're, we're talking about the book, where can people go to find it? Where can people go to? you know what are the different editions like do 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 the whole pitch on 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 where you can get the book right now okay sure so you can go to abyssalarchive.com you can read the full campaign it goes until august 14th so if you want to have the um the, some of the limited edition ver versions well you you should act now um the standard edition will still be available afterwards for pre-order and things but this first month is a very important for us in terms of uh, gauging uh, gauging your demand so um 
the sooner the sooner if you're if you're going to get it the sooner the better it helps us decide how much we're going to make for everyone else and how much um we're going to do in terms of the future we would love to have an audiobook version for example narrated by Vatividia in the future how that's going to play out again it depends purely on your contributions as as the fandom again we we really love what we're here to give you we hope you agree um the in terms of sort of the the different uh, editions that we're actually getting now let me just quickly draw this up so that way i don't make any mistakes here <laughs> it's okay yeah, yeah okay so in terms of the in terms of the pre-order until august 14th you'll be able to get a limited edition version which has this special clamshell presentation box with so the normal version the two volumes come in a slip case it's very nice but even better is this um this this box which you you again you can see it on the campaign page it's this beautiful hard varnish like you can just kind of uh, put them both in here, really keep it secure and protected. Um, and obviously these books, again, very good quality. You'll want to keep them protected as best you can on your bookshelf. Um, add, uh, add to that, it'll come with its own bookmark. And then the uh, the the uh, most expensive edition that we're having is going to have um, sort of you can have your name put into the book as well. Sort of if you want to sort of contribute because you you love the project, you love my work, you love Dark Souls. Feel free to and you will really are willing to pitch in. Um, we're more than happy to have your name listed in this book. We're very pr proud to do that and then sort of show your contribution to both this project and of course to the Dark Souls lore as a whole. And then. If you've purchased this book, once we have the final sort of layout and everything set out, we will be sending you a free digital bundle with your pre-order. So that way, even while you're waiting for the physical copy, there will be a digital copy you can read in the coming month. In the coming months, so Ooh, while you're waiting on that physical copy, yeah, yeah. So like you know, if you you know tablet, Kindle, you know, like all these different all these different ways you can read now. Like if you if you um. If you want to like get to it as soon as possible, you can. Also, if you're still curious about the exact contents, if you think that there's some things you're like, oh, I'm not really sure, know that at the bottom of the campaign page, you can subscribe and you'll be emailed a digital sample for two chapters. Personally, I think they're pretty spicy, so I'm surprised the publisher let, the, let those out so soon. But um, <laughs> I think that they should give you a very fair idea of what to expect. So. And you'll find, listeners, uh, you can find links to all that stuff in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on your podcast app of choice, just open up the information page and click the links and send money through your phone to uh, tune in Fairweather and get some really nice, cool stuff in return. Um, like, I'd be, I'd be remiss. This is, this is a podcast about from software video games. Uh, and I want to, we talked last in 20, I think 18 or maybe even 2019. Um, mm -hmm. Uh since then, obviously, Elden Ring has come out, uh, which is a, a huge video game. Um, have you had time to play Elden Ring in between creating this book for the last three years or so? Um, I played it a little bit. I had to stop. I sort of stopped after I beat uh, Godric and got into a li little bit of Lyurnia because um, obviously so much stuff with the pre-order sort of took my time. Mm -hmm. But I have played a, I have played a bit of it, um, and I'm... Um, I still haven't played uh, Demon Souls or Bloodborne, which is funny because if you read my website, I actually have uh, uh, fully covered Demon Souls and I'm covering large parts of Bloodborne. So, funny how that works out. <laughs> but so, like those are those are again amazing games with amazing narratives that are worth talking about. So. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, they're all super fun. Uh, they're, they're all very, very fun video games. Um, so really, you you haven't had the time to to really get into. I was curious if you had any. Uh, I guess commentary on uh, just the lore of Elden Ring and how it's presented, specifically from a translation point of view, because uh, some of the item descriptions in there are, I think they're written in a, in a very different tone than some of the other some of the other games that we've had. Like, well, actually, this is something I can't actually comment on because I, I've gone through at least on the item description side. I've covered through a lot of the item descriptions at this point. Like, I've been working with Vati on the side to help look, read through those and sort of see if there's anything relevant on the Japanese perspective. I think the full girth of text forced the localization to keep it simple. Um, there's a lot of um, lot of lines which don't have that normal. Um, localization flowery language purple prose flourish right They're, they they don't have these you know sort of like overly descriptive like overly creative sentences it's sort of like okay just gonna uh it says like you know bob got on the boat okay bob got on the boat we're just gonna write that out um there's a lot more of that obviously from a 
print from a translation point of view um that's it's definitely something where you're like okay well it just sort of gives you the information there you can sort of argue on an artistic point of view if maybe they could have been maybe more creative with it but again that's completely that's completely out of my depth that's something for everyone to decide the in terms of the uh localization errors and things like that um so far i haven't seen and i've again i've looked at maybe like 50 60 percent of the game script at this point um so far uh, a lot like there's some stuff with like terminology and things like for example imperion is a good example with this the japanese of it is the kanji basically reads out something like god man um and the idea is like or and it has like it has various meanings it can be like a priest you can refer to like obviously a god itself it can refer to demigods um the idea is usually those like a, a man who's like god or could be god and obviously, in terms of the localization, to figure out, okay, well, how can we find a fancy term that can kind of get across the idea that these are people who are singled out as being potentially being the new god? Obviously, that ties into like being Elden Lord and marrying Marika, the, the you know the big god, like the big G. So like all all that sort of um, um, becomes like a localization issue. Um, but like, is it like necessarily a problem? Again, I'll, I'll leave people to decide on that. There's some like terms that are definitely could have been localized better, I think. Um, but Overall, I think this is definitely one of the better localizations that From Software has been able to put out. Um, so, for what it's worth, are you um, are you? I mean, is work on the book finished now? Like, are you kind of done with it and just waiting for publishing and printing and like people to physically put it together? Um, yes. So, so like, like um, we we do have one more pass to make for okay. typos and things like that. You know, one final look to make sure like everything's in order. There aren't any like emergency situations we need to worry about. Um, but yes, generally the cortex is all done. Um, my thoughts on Dark Souls, like my my thoughts on Dark Souls One. Um, I'm not necessarily certain if they a hundred percent reflected like it could be that there's some things where it's like you know i've kind of my thinking's evolved or i have more i could add to that now but you know at some point there's a cutoff date right you have to just talk about what you what you know so um so with that with that being kind of finished quote unquote uh are you gonna have more time to play video games now like are you excited just to relax <laughs> like are you just gonna hang oh, out and be like oh, oh yeah yeah it's definitely it's enjoyable to be able to um just sort of t- uh, take a break and say, I don't have to do anything right now. <laughs> There's not something I have to worry about. There's not th- this going to do, especially when you're working and writing. Like you're always making a new, it's always the next manuscript, things like that. So being able to take a bit breather for a project like this, which has sort of been sitting on the back burner for so long and be able to finally come out with it. It's like, ah. And so are you, are you looking forward to getting into Demon Souls or Bloodborne or Elden Ring at all? Or what, what oh, you, I, would, what? I would love Maybe like maybe I'll I'll stream Demon Souls remake or something like that. That'd be great to do. Uh, do um, Bloodborne. I'm still I'm still I'm still hoping, man. I'm hoping for that Bloodborne PC port. I know it's not gonna happen, but come on, man, <laughs> just give me some hope. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, I, I mean, the closest you're gonna get is PS Now. I think at, at this point, like yeah, you're, you're, you're I, only I'm like, gonna, there's be gonna be a to... PS5 remake before there's a, a PC port or remaster. <laughs> and I don't. I'll be honest, with you, I don't even see them doing that. Like it's so weird that Sony just. It's almost like the redheaded stepchild of the Sony first party stuff, and it's. I mean, it's such a huge and popular game that I don't. It makes me think that like somebody is mad at somebody, <laughs> like holding something, some all everything else at bay because it's just so weird that they, they barely acknowledge that the game exists even with like promotional materials and stuff. Like it's just really, really strange. Um, well, it is. I, I know it's not the most played of the From Software titles in part because it's a console exclusive. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's so weird to me because it is a console exclusive. You think they'd want to push it more, especially especially after they did Demon Souls remake, right? Like that was like that was the, that was the game that like didn't really sell well compared to Bloodborne, right? At the time right like it was sort of like it, it, it had to find its niche success um so it's like it's it's kind of crazy when you think about it yeah and demon souls was the game that like you know sony was on record for basically actively hating at the time um and yeah and and now, now they're like oh we realize how valuable this is okay then bring over bloodborne <laughs> yeah then give us blood like pay them for bloodborne too i want my old west bloodborne too okay i want my demons and <laughs> my weird gods and old west america bloodborne too that's what i've been asking for for years now and this is never going to happen i'm gonna have to go somewhere else for it very frustrating well you know what the longer they take to come out with a sequel the more time i have to finish analyzing the first one so. <laughs> there you go that's a good way to approach it <laughs> So, um, that's what that's one benefit for me it's like okay when i when, when i finish like writing out and publishing it all on my website then you know maybe may, then maybe i'll be like okay fully okay with the sequel but it's like it's so it's so funny especially when you're working on something like dark souls for example and um it's like okay well i i'm like we're at like the third entry in the franchise like hopeful like we we don't think there's going to be a fourth one but you never know when they could make that announcement it's that's like true. oh boy i better catch up <laughs> i uh i mean i i would 
you know, watching Elden Ring, I was in the network test and um, before the network test, I d- the videos and stuff were coming out, like the, the, the little 10 minute like preview things. And I was, I let myself watch like a couple of those and I just came out of it thinking like, wow, this looks like Dark Souls 4. And as somebody who kind of burnt himself out, um, mostly just because I was using the games more for content creation than I was actually like playing the games, but I had really burnt myself out on Dark Souls 3 and I just... I was like, oh man, I cannot, I, if this is going to be Dark Souls 4, like I just, I can't hang. Um, it was so refreshing, like booting Elden Ring up and it's habit not be that. Um, but also in a way, do is that, but in a way that works entirely. So I was so excited like to be to able to describe it, it as Dark Souls 2 too. Like Miyazaki saw Dark Souls 2. He saw what the others in From Software were doing with that game. He said, I can do that, but better. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, I think it's it's Dark Souls 2 too, but it also feels like, uh from software souls like four like if you go demon dark bloodborne yeah, and then yeah. Elden if you, Ring. Like, you go if you go through like the, the full thing like i always like to think of it like this you have demon souls and then from demon souls you sprout out dark souls they're direct spiritual successors is me exactly like joke yeah. about at the time um so you kind of have go into dark souls then obviously a bloodborne which sort of branches off from dark souls one i like to think about and then mm-hmm. obviously there's dark souls three sekiro sekiro i kind of consider in its own thing i don't really consider it the same as some people make it there as souls born quote-unquote um, and then you sort of go into Elden Ring. It sort of feels like it's building on everything that it did in Dark Souls, Demon Souls, to some extent Bloodborne, and to some extent Sekiro. So it's like exactly, yeah. Um, which leads us to the, the the question that I always ask at the end of this podcast, which is um, why is my dog groaning so much in the background? Hopefully that's not coming through on the mic. <laughs> um, I don't hear it. So <laughs> um, where I mean, from software has like some announced things and some not announced things, um, and as always, it's it, they play it pretty close to the vest until they get ready to release a trailer. In your mind, what is like the most exciting thing that from software could announce either? A, E3 or just drop a trailer on us somewhere or like what is your most eagerly anticipated from software title right now or like even not even a title but just like what could they possibly do to get you like agog with excitement new armored core armored core okay that's what yeah, everybody yeah. says i think so, yeah it, it sounds a bit uh, it may sound a bit out of left field considering the topic of this podcast up until now but like armored core is definitely like it's a it's very near and dear to my heart before I even understood that it was from software who really were making it, it's like, oh, hey, it's the same people who do Dark Souls. It was just, it's it's a franchise that I've I've always loved, um, not necessarily from a narrative or lore side, quote unquote, but um, just from a gameplay and just a concept side. I really lo- love the idea of you just get into a giant mech and you're you're a mercenary and you're you know you're you're just trying to make your, your living at the end of the day on this uh these like over like these these very like for you inside the mech it's like these very tiny uh these very tiny like uh worlds it almost feels like like you're this colossus like there's just so much about armored core that i just love um so i think that plays a huge role in uh that plays a huge role in sort of like my excitement going forward because like i've seen i've heard about some of the leaks i don't know what direction they're going to go to or how accurate they're going to be to the final product but like when they announce armored core i know i'm going to be excited and then we'll we'll see how that plays out with like what they're doing with it but yeah that's definitely something where i was like ooh, definitely if i saw bloodborne 2 you know i'll be pretty decently excited about that if i saw a new dark souls i'm like uh you know we've already got three do we really need a fourth one yeah if i see um if i see like say uh Elden Ring DLC, oh yeah, that's going to be pretty nice, right? If I see um, Elden Ring two, it's like, oh boy, this is going to take ten years. <laughs> I hope so. I hope they, I hope they absolutely do an Elden Ring two, and they just hire uh, uh, Brandon Sanderson this time and just make a totally different world. But I have basically, you know, the same stuff, same kind of vibe to it because I think that would be so much fun. Um, well, well, like I said, I, for me, it doesn't matter if if. Um, from software comes out with a new ip or they just do a sequel to an older ip i think that ultimately what what miyazaki and from software have done and like they're the niche that they've sort of carved out over the years i think that's that's done wonders and i think they've also shown with games like sekiro they don't feel like they have to be bound to the strict souls formula so to speak they can branch out and make something so radically different it's almost it's almost completely unrecognizable in many ways so it's like i think there's a lot um, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of reasons to be excited with whatever they announce personally. But like I said, Armored Core, that's the one like we haven't seen an Armored Core game in a while. I would really like to see a new Armored Core. I think everybody would. I, um, as somebody who has not experienced those games at all um, and has been kind of intimidated by them uh, from just casual conversation around them. And also they're like the good ones are relatively hard to like play. I think um, I think that's gotten easier lately. But 
Uh, I've always been just kind of waiting for them to do a new one just so I could dive in and have that be my, my first experience with it. So I'm, I'd be really curious because I, I like mechs. Mechs are cool. So give, give me, give me from mechs and I will, I will probably be there day one. So, uh, Loki, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about your book and, and catching up with us uh, again, coming back onto the podcast. We, we very much appreciate it. Uh, I'll have links to all of the pre-order stuff for your book in the show notes. Uh, but in the meantime, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Loki underscore DS. That's Loki, L-O-K-E-Y underscore DS. You can also find me on my website at LokiSouls.com. Um, you can be able to read all my stuff on Dark Souls 2, Demon Souls, Dark Souls 3, Bloodborne, and sort of if that if that and the sample chapters for the book doesn't give you an idea, then maybe the book isn't for you. But I think you're going to find something you didn't know and you're going to really like it. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting book to read. Um, and obviously it's going to be super high quality. Um, and boy, do I just have to have the map. I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at three of his other maps right now as we're recording. So I got to I got to have that map. <laughs> oh, uh, people have already been asking about if we're going to be able to have like standalone, like framed copy versions to be mm-hmm. able to send out. I was like, listen, your support helps fund yeah. and, and determine the demand for those things. So like please like yeah. if you if, put your money you, put your money where your mouth is <laughs> yeah, exactly like put it where it is like again like this is ultimately an independent unofficial work so every bit of support helps it both helps fund for all the work that's gone into it over these past few years as well as helps determine that we can make more i i've been asked a lot well you know is this just gonna be dark souls one i would love to see stuff on dark souls two and three i have a lot of that on my website if i would ever like to do all of it and compile it all into a new book i would love to for same with demon souls same with bloodborne same with like any of these if you guys want more we'll see we'll see that in the demand so thank you guys so much for listening i very appreciate being able to come on again yeah and as always uh this has been don't give up skeleton i haven't recorded this podcast in a while so i used to have a whole uh outro routine that i did that i have now forgotten uh but you can find episodes of this podcast on don't give up skeleton.com as well as any of your podcast apps of choice Ratings and reviews, even though the podcast is like quote unquote on hiatus, hiatus always helps. But uh, if you just want to tell your friends and family about the podcast, that would that would go a long way to spreading it around. It's still on hiatus. Uh, I'm I'm put out episodes every once in a while, obviously like today, um, but I'm not accepting like new requests for interviews or anything like that. Uh, just in general, um, so go listen to the old episodes. They're so much fun. Um, and you can you know, go to don'tgiveupskeleton.com and there's a hundred and like 20,000 episodes or something. So go check that out. Uh, but the most important thing is to remember, don't give up skeleton. All right. Okay. We're good. I, uh, I took you right to the limit. I, I forgot that you had, uh, you mentioned that you had a podcast. Yeah. yeah, I have nothing on that. yeah. yeah. <laughs>